Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Doom 64, a first-person shooter developed and published by Midway Games and released for the Nintendo 64 in 1997. We're going to look at that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 61. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have an X account, which sounds weird to say, but I guess I should probably start saying X instead of Twitter. And in any event, that handle is at ClassicGamingT, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord, including our Weekend Gaming Challenge. This past weekend was all about cleaning out the backlog. I posted a ton of different games and said, you have one mission, to beat as many of them as possible. And there were multiple people that took up that challenge. ISO got 40 points this past weekend. He has 254 points. He's in first. Boogie Gnu got 40 points as well. He not only beat Minesweeper an Expert, he beat the time that I posted. So he now jumps back into second place with 130 points. I remain in third place with 99 points. Rich Senewald braved the forests of Contra to get 20 points this weekend. He now has 76 points in fourth place. Left-handed guitarist also beat Minesweeper for 20 points. He is in fifth with 35 points. I Am The Dizzle is in sixth place with 24 points. And making his leaderboard debut is Public Self, who got 10 points from the monthly challenge. So he is now in seventh place. The only way to have this kind of fun is to join us out on Discord. There are prizes, and not just for the winners. So I do highly encourage everybody to check it out. I should also mention that we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today, where you can get an exclusive bi-weekly podcast, exclusive access to some discord channels and roles in discord and a bunch of other cool things. So if that sounds like a good time, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show. Whether you contribute monetarily or you simply listen on a regular basis, I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or assign star ratings or anything like that, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics, how does the game look, the sound and music, how does the game sound, the narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way 
to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you have nostalgia for the title or you enjoy the genre in which they live. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. I have no reservations recommending these titles. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really good experiences and you should definitely still play them today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They may have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these to the broader population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or... They may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Doom 64. Doom 64 is a first-person shooter developed and published by Midway Games and released for the Nintendo 64 in 1997. Before we can talk about Doom 64, we've got to talk about the original Doom and all of its offshoots and ports. Otherwise, we won't truly understand what makes Doom 64 a special, unique release in gaming history. First, though, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our prior episodes on id Software and their early game releases, one of which includes an episode focused entirely on Doom. We have four episodes in our back catalog covering the Commander Keen series, Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, and Quake. That is over four hours of id Software-focused discussion, so if anyone is interested in going down a fairly deep rabbit hole, be sure to check those episodes out. I'm not going to recount all of that history here, obviously, but I do just want to provide a brief refresher to make sure we're all starting from the same page. So, let's talk about id Software, which at the time of its formation consisted of four individuals, programmer extraordinaire John Carmack, visionary designer John Romero, ingenious artist Adrian Carmack, with no relation to John Carmack, by the way, and project manager slash designer Tom Hall. These four had met while working on an early computer publication called Softdisk Magazine, which, as its name implies, was one of those computer periodicals that would provide a disc with various programs and games on it for individuals to run at home. While working at Softdisk, the team would be responsible for delivering a variety of games on a monthly basis, and while they enjoyed the work, they also began to have loftier goals in mind. They wanted to form their own company where they could create the games they wanted to make, while at the same time not having to follow anyone else's guidelines or restrictions. They wanted to be in control of their own destiny. 
John Carmack's genius would provide the catalyst for eventually leaving SoftDisk and forming id Software, as he was able to create a mechanism for computers to utilize smooth scrolling, a technique that was prevalent on home consoles, but was surprisingly difficult to accomplish on computers of the time. In most computer games of the mid to late 80s, navigation consisted of moving from one screen to the next. Meaning, as you approach the edge of your current screen, a new screen would appear, either as a direct replacement or via some sort of shift mechanic, like what Legend of Zelda utilized. This was the case regardless of the type of game. Even platformers were single-screen-at-a-time affairs, which means a title like the original Super Mario Bros. could never have really worked on a computer, at least until John Carmack figured out how to make it work. While an original pitch to port Nintendo's 8-bit Super Mario Bros. 3 to computer was met with rejection, Carmack and the team were able to use his new smooth side-scrolling technology to create a brand new game, which is what resulted in the creation of the Commander Keen series of titles, the first of which released in late 1990. While Commander Keen was a success, and there would be a number of episodes released in that series, it didn't take long before Carmack began looking at a different technology as the basis for id's next game. Inspired by the early 80s action stealth title Castle Wolfenstein, it decided that they wanted to create a similar experience as their next title. Only this time, they wanted to shift from two-dimensional platforming into three-dimensional shooting. Or, I should say, pseudo-3D, because the technology just wasn't there to create a fully realized three-dimensional game yet, complete with polygons, textures, and all of that good stuff. Instead, Carmack came up with an engine that would effectively take two-dimensional maps and sprites and, using some clever programming tricks, create a three-dimensional first-person perspective that players could navigate. This pseudo-three-dimensional first-person experience would eventually evolve into the grandfather of the first-person shooter genre, Wolfenstein 3D, which would release to market in 1992, kickstarting the popularization of the first-person shooter genre. Now note, I say popularization and not creation, because although Wolfenstein 3D is widely considered to be one of the first first-person shooters ever created, it is not truly the first. There were a few efforts that predated Wolfenstein 3D's creation, though certainly none reached the same level of popularity that Wolfenstein did. Regardless, it would be id's next release, the first-person shooter classic Doom that would literally change the world forever. Doom was released in late 1993, and shortly after it hit the market, the first-person shooter genre fully hit its stride, with id Software attaining rockstar status and the entire industry shifting rapidly in response to Doom's popularity. The number of Doom clones that would come out in the years following its release was significant, and even today, Doom's influence is still felt across the entire video and computer game industry. Before we continue... I think it's important to talk about some of the technology behind Doom, which was itself an evolution of the Wolfenstein 3D engine that John Carmack had previously created. The Doom engine would, similar to Wolfenstein 3D, be a pseudo-three-dimensional engine, where two-dimensional sprites and maps would be projected to create a three-dimensional perspective. Unlike Wolfenstein 3D, though, the Doom engine would be able to utilize full texture mapping across its entire environment, inclusive of walls and ceilings, and, generally speaking, level geometry was much more complex, with varied angles, different wall heights, and more interactivity in the game world, like switches that could manipulate the environment, like revealing a hidden passageway or raising and lowering a pedestal. 
the engine would also utilize more advanced lighting, or at least would utilize some clever programming to simulate advanced lighting in the game. Rather than the single brightness featured in Wolfenstein 3D, Doom would allow for much darker scenes, and clever programming tricks made it so that the game would appear to support light sources that naturally changed in brightness as you moved either towards or away from the light. In reality, that was accomplished using color palette swaps as opposed to true three-dimensional lighting techniques, but the effect was the same. It looked awesome to behold. Beyond the more technological aspects of the engine, Doom would feature a menagerie of monsters and creatures to be defeated, a killer metal soundtrack by musician Bobby Prince, and would be the game that would thrust the concept of multiplayer competitive deathmatches into gaming culture. The combination of fast-paced action, tight gameplay with a variety of guns at your disposal, and multiplayer fragging is what, for many people, represents the core Doom experience. It would be safe to say that Doom took the computing world by storm, and it wouldn't be long before Doom would be ported to other systems and platforms. Nowadays, almost any device with an electrical pulse can run Doom, and it's become almost like a pop culture development challenge to see whether you can port Doom to a device. We've had Doom running on calculators, on smart fridges, on cash registers, in Minecraft, and even on the touch bar of a MacBook Pro computer. Literally, Doom is everywhere. Interestingly, that was also the case shortly after Doom's release, but the difference is technology wasn't quite as advanced as it is today, which means various Doom ports would include different features and concessions to allow it to run on a particular device. We're going to talk about a bunch of these ports, because for one, I really enjoy looking at how different games perform and are tweaked for different systems and platforms, and two, this is going to provide additional context for the remainder of our discussion. First, though, I would be remiss if I didn't at least give a shout-out to the various computer platform ports of Doom. While today we only really have a small handful of computer platforms and operating systems with any degree of market share, like Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, back in the early 90s, the number of potential computer platforms was dramatically larger, and most of them were fairly proprietary in design. So, the act of porting Doom to these different operating systems was not quite as straightforward as it is today. But regardless, intrepid game developers, most of whom were contracted by id Software to develop these ports, would eventually get Doom working on Macintosh, Linux, Unix, OS2, Acorn Archimedes, the Irix operating system, which was Silicon Graphics' proprietary OS for their workstations, which honestly feels like a really niche kind of port, but regardless, perhaps most famously... The Doom engine and the Doom game would be ported to Windows 95, which we actually talked a little bit about during our episode on No One Lives Forever. Now, the Windows 95 port of Doom is interesting for a couple of different reasons. Microsoft was really pushing hard to court developers to create titles for their new Windows 95 platform, which they were hoping would provide a more enticing environment than the traditional DOS platforms that many games of the time utilized. They wanted to get as many high-profile games on Windows 95 as possible, and in the process, they offered some pretty ridiculous deals to a number of developers just to get some brand association. For Doom, Microsoft agreed to effectively do all of the work needed to get Doom working on Windows 95 for free, with id Software maintaining all rights to the title. This was pretty much a no-brainer kind of deal for id Software, because there was literally no downside for them. If their game sold well on Windows, they got to pocket what was effectively free money. 
So Doom would make its way to Windows 95 under the leadership of then Microsoft employee Gabe Newell, who, as many know, is someone that would eventually become a legend in the computer gaming industry himself, having, amongst other things, founded Valve Software, created Half-Life, and developed and launched the Steam digital software distribution platform. I mention all of these computer ports simply for completeness sake, as most shared many of the same features of the original DOS version of Doom. There were a couple of minor differences across ports, primarily related to graphics quality and music playback, but overall, these Doom ports were effectively the same Doom people were used to, just on a different platform. The same can't be said for the various console ports of Doom, each of which have an interesting mix of changes that, in some cases, change the way it feels to even play the game. Other ports were simply restricted due to a given console's processing power, while some even tried to outdo the original, albeit to a limited degree. In no particular order, we're going to touch upon a bunch, though not all, of the console ports Doom received over the years. First, and perhaps most importantly, was the port to the Atari Jaguar. Now, I know what you might be thinking. How could a port of one of the most popular games of all time to one of the biggest console flops of all time be an important release? Well, the reason is, the Jaguar port of Doom was actually the first Doom port to be worked on, though it wouldn't actually be the first port released. That distinction belongs to the Sega 32X version, which we're going to talk about in a couple minutes. Anyway, the Jaguar port owns the distinction of being the only port of Doom that was actually worked on by id Software itself, and in fact, John Carmack was the guy that recreated the Doom engine for use on the Jaguar system. He was once interviewed on the Jaguar's capabilities, and he had surprisingly high praise for the system, claiming that the way Atari designed the programmable chips in the system actually provided a great deal of power for any developer who would take the time to actually create custom routines for those chips to execute. Being a port by none other than John Carmack himself, you might expect a certain level of quality, and you would be right. While the Jaguar port wouldn't have any in-game music due to the fact that a single chip in the system performed both mathematical operations as well as music playback, and Doom needed that math to run its engine, the rest of the port would be a decent recreation of the Doom experience. Sure, some enemies didn't make the cut, a few levels were removed, though there were a couple of new ones that would be added, and some other levels had to be simplified a bit. But for the most part, Jaguar Doom felt like Doom though it did away with the whole three-episode structure of the original game in favor of a more level-to-level approach, similar to what we would see in Doom 2. Jaguar Doom was also significant because the various level modifications made for that title would form the foundation for every other console port that would follow, which in a way makes Jaguar Doom the grandfather of Doom on home video game consoles. The Sega 32X version, by contrast, would be a much more limited Doom experience. Developed and published by Sega, the 32X version would be a bit less full-featured than Jaguar Doom, with only 17 levels included, effectively eliminating all of the levels from Episode 3, several enemies removed, the removal of the BFG from the weapon list, a smaller overall screen size, and much lower quality music than the PC version of the title, though at least it did have music in the game. 32X Doom would be the first version released on a home console, and while it wasn't quite up to par with the original, It was still Doom on your television, and that counted for something. The Super NES version of Doom would also appear on your television, 
but I'm not sure anyone would be particularly thrilled with how it turned out. This version was developed by a company called Sculptured Software, who was previously responsible for the Super Star Wars trilogy of titles for the Super Nintendo, as well as all of the Mortal Kombat ports for the SNES. To convert Doom to the Super Nintendo system, a brand new engine would have to be created, dubbed the Reality Engine, which would take advantage of the Super Nintendo's Super FX chip to help with rendering the game's graphics and performing the various mathematical computations needed to present Doom's pseudo-3D environment. That might sound all well and good, and the game would have some additional features beyond other console ports of the time, such as an expanded set of levels, more enemies, and a high-quality audio soundtrack very similar to the original DOS version of Doom. But that's where the goodness ends, as to achieve even a passable level of performance, the graphics were turned into a pixely mess, whereby it was incredibly hard to see what enemies were where, which in turn would make it difficult to both navigate levels as well as react to incoming damage. The frame rate was also subpar, and while the game would have more weapons than other ports, some of the behavior of those weapons was changed, such as the shotgun losing its spray pattern. If you had to play Doom on a purely 16-bit console, this was pretty much your only option. But even then, it is a bit hard to recommend this one. That's not to diminish the accomplishment of getting Doom running on the Super Nintendo, a system whose CPU only ran at 3.5 MHz. To put it into perspective, for a truly smooth Doom experience on PC, you would need a mid-range 486 running at around 66 MHz. Even when you include the Super FX chip into the equation, that particular chip only ran at 21 MHz. So the fact that Doom even runs on the Super Nintendo at all is a major achievement. I still wouldn't recommend you play it, but I can admire the development team's effort. Even harder to recommend was the Panasonic 3DO version of the title, which is one port we did talk about back during our Doom episode many months ago. This one is something of a legend as far as Doom ports go, as it would be by far the absolute worst port of the game. Developed by Art Data Interactive, 3DO Doom would be marketed as THE Doom to rule them all, as Art Data Interactive CEO Randy Scott claimed that the new version would feature bigger and better levels, more advanced graphics, a killer soundtrack, full motion video sequences, and a ton of other features that were all of it to come true would have been truly amazing. There was only one issue. None of his claims were based in reality, and in some cases were driven by an absolute total lack of understanding for how video and computer games are developed. Just as a singular example, Scott thought that if you took a picture of a weapon and put it into the game world, that it would simply work. This is so so wrong, and completely discounts the act of modeling the weapon, capturing sound effects, integrating that weapon model into the game world, animating the weapon, making sure it actually is able to be attached to the player character, developing views of the weapon from different perspectives, and a bunch of other stuff. Because of his complete misunderstanding of the development process, he would routinely claim that the game had gone gold, despite the fact that literally no custom 3DO work had been completed to date. And by the way, for those who may not know, the phrase gone gold used to be the way game companies referenced the fact that their titles were finished and ready for mass production, or release in today's world. You don't see that phrase used as much today, but it is still used occasionally. Interestingly, there used to be a website in the early days of the internet called gonegold.com, which is a site I used to frequent regularly to see when new game releases would be coming out. Anyway, mild tangent aside, despite Scott's claims, 
the 3DO version of Doom was not in any state of release-worthy development, and it would take Rebecca Heinemann, a truly legendary figure in the video and computer game industry, to get the 3DO version to the finish line. Heinemann was a prior national video game champion, having won a National Space Invaders competition, was also one of the four founding members of Interplay, and was also a rock star developer, having programmed numerous titles over the 80s and early 90s. She had been the person responsible for porting id Software's Wolfenstein 3D to the Panasonic 3DO, and in the process, she created perhaps the most impressive version of the title on a home console. Heinemann was given approximately 10 weeks to port Doom to the 3DO, and because Randy Scott literally had nothing other than some mocked-up art assets, Heinemann had to start effectively from scratch. Luckily, she was able to get in touch with John Carmack, who provided her with the source code for his prior Jaguar Doom port, which at least gave her something to start with. She did, in fact, manage to complete a port of the title in time for the agreed-upon release date but this version would be by far the worst version of Doom on a home console. Its frame rate was poor, it had to run in a minimized screen size, and its controls were terribly laggy. This is not a reflection on Heinemann's skills, mind you, because the fact that she got anything close to a playable release in just 10 weeks speaks to her mythical programming prowess. But the fact is, the 3DO version of Doom was subpar in nearly every way except perhaps its soundtrack, which was recorded by Randy Scott's band and would feature some really high-quality reimaginings of the classic Doom soundtrack. That wouldn't be enough to save the game, but it was a minor bright spot in an otherwise disastrous release. At this point, you might be thinking that Doom just doesn't belong on a home console, at least in the early 90s, because literally every effort to get something workable either ultimately didn't work or had too many concessions needed to make a somewhat playable experience. But as the 90s rolled on, something interesting happened. A new generation of consoles hit the market, and with that technological advancement, it was time to once again try porting Dooms to gamers' television screens around the world, and the first instance of Doom appearing on a next-gen console would be a port to the venerable Sony PlayStation system. The Sony PlayStation would release in late 1994 in Japan, and late 1995 pretty much everywhere else, and it would become an absolute juggernaut of a system, with advanced 32-bit visuals, CD-quality audio, and, given its CD-ROM technology, it would have the ability to deliver bigger and better gaming experiences than had ever been seen on home consoles previously. Doom on PlayStation would be one of its first releases, going on sale in November of 1995, just two months following the PlayStation's North American release. The act of porting Doom to the PlayStation would fall to Midway Games, and more specifically, the Williams Entertainment division of the company. We have talked about Midway several times in previous podcast episodes, most notably during our episodes on NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat. But just to summarize, Midway was a big deal in the arcade gaming scene, and their success in that area of the video game industry would expand into home versions of games as well, both through publishing deals as well as internally developed titles. The development team at Midway, who would ultimately be responsible for porting Doom to PlayStation, faced an interesting decision. They knew they wanted to create something that would leverage the power of the new console, and their overarching goal was to create something that reflected the same level of quality of the DOS original. As the team began working on the title, they realized that there were certain things the PlayStation couldn't do quite as well as computers, like computing and displaying pseudo-three-dimensional spaces, collisions, and texture mapping, 
While there were also some things that the PlayStation really excelled at, like various lighting effects, background details, and perhaps most notably, CD audio-based music. In an attempt to play to the console's strengths, the development team looked at prior console ports and decided that this would be the one to rule them all. They wanted to create the definitive Doom experience on a home console system. What this ended up meaning was that the game would include 23 levels from the original PC version of Doom, as well as two custom levels originally created for Jaguar Doom, as well as 23 levels from the PC version of Doom 2, and five levels from the final episode of the PC version of Ultimate Doom, and six brand new levels created exclusively for the PlayStation version of the game bringing the total level count for PS Doom up to 59 individual levels, which was insane in comparison to other releases of the time. In fact, I believe this particular release represented the largest collection of official Doom levels ever released in one package, at least up to that point. Now, granted, the levels would need to be reduced in complexity a bit, and once again, Jaguar Doom provided the foundation for how those edits would be implemented. The texture quality similarly had to be reduced in order to meet performance requirements for the title, which was targeting a locked 30 frames per second. But other than those relatively minor edits, this was the Doom that PC players had known and loved for several years. In some ways, PlayStation Doom was even more advanced than its PC counterpart, with new and varied light sources embedded throughout each level a new monster, which was the partially translucent Nightmare Spectre, and perhaps most notably, a brand new CD audio soundtrack composed by Aubrey Hodges, who had previously worked with Sierra Online on a number of their early 90s adventure titles. This new soundtrack would be unique, in that unlike Bobby Prince's original heavy metal-inspired soundtrack, Hodges' new soundtrack would be much more industrial and ambient in nature, which served to change the feel of playing Doom from a purely action-driven affair to one that skewed a bit closer to horror and dread. The core gameplay mechanics in PS Doom was still decidedly action-oriented, but it's amazing how changing the music of a scene can make a game, or really any experience, feel entirely different, even if the rest of a given scene doesn't change. Anyway, PlayStation Doom would go on to be a huge success, and would shortly after its release be recognized as the second-highest-selling version of the title, with only the PC original beating it in terms of sales. For the most part, critics loved this version of Doom, and many felt that Midway's efforts went beyond a simple port of an existing title to become something more. Sure, most of the game's content originated in various PC versions, but the enhancements beyond the original were noted as a shining example of a port done right, which for Doom had been an impossibility up to this point. I recognize at this point of the episode, some of you may be scratching your head as to what any of this has to do with Doom 64, which is the main topic we're going to be talking about. You might be thinking, okay, cool, so Doom had a ton of ports, big deal. And to that I would say, sure, you might be right to a degree in that all of these Doom ports aren't exactly related to what Doom 64 would become. But I feel like this context is important, because before Doom 64, no matter what port we'd be talking about, Doom on a home console or alternate computer platform all originated from the PC original. Meaning, while some ports might have enhancements and others might have concessions, there was one thing in common. Doom, regardless of the platform, was Doom. And when word arose that Midway was going to begin working on a Doom port for the forthcoming Nintendo 64 console back in 1994, 
That's exactly what the majority of the gaming population was expecting. Doom, but on Nintendo's latest console. The interesting thing is, when Midway began working on the game, they had not intended to create a port of Doom at all. Sure, they wanted to create a Doom-like experience on the console, and they were interested in creating another title in the overarching Doom universe. But the game Midway was planning to create was more of an offshoot or expansion on the core Doom framework, as opposed to a simple recreation and port of a pre-existing version of the game. Midway had familiarity with porting Doom to the PlayStation, so they knew how to do that, and technically they could have done the same for Nintendo's new console. Instead, though, they wanted to create a truly brand new game, something that could take advantage of the capabilities of the Nintendo 64 while delivering a Doom experience that would be both familiar and different than what had come before. In fact, when development began on Doom 64, it wasn't even titled as though it were a Doom game. Instead, Midway began to develop the title under the working codename The Absolution, only choosing to change the title to Doom 64 prior to release in order to help with brand recognition as well as the fact that almost every game released for the Nintendo 64 needed to have the number 64 embedded somewhere in its title. I'm pretty sure that was a contractual agreement between Nintendo and third-party developers. While that last part may not have been true, the fact is that Doom 64 would become a very different game than any Doom title that preceded it. We've talked at length about the kinds of concessions and features prior Doom ports featured. For Doom 64, we can't have that discussion, because everything about Doom 64 was, for the most part, unique. So let's take a look at Doom 64 in a bit more detail. Before we do that though, a quick note about PlayStation Doom and how it contributed to the development of Doom 64. Like I mentioned, the same team that ported Doom to the PlayStation would be responsible for creating Doom 64, and when work for Doom 64 began in 1994 alongside PlayStation Doom, one thing was clear. Nintendo was making a lot of promises about its forthcoming powerhouse console, and it was truly being billed as a revolutionary release that would be much more powerful than any current console on the market. There was only one problem. For all of Nintendo's promises, there wasn't much yet in the way of actual physical proof that those promises would come true, which meant that for a portion of the game's development, Doom 64 wasn't even able to be developed on an actual, real-world Nintendo 64 system. Yet, the team knew they wanted to create something original as opposed to a separate port, and they knew, or at least assumed, that the Nintendo 64 would have some fairly advanced graphical capabilities. So, they did the next best thing. They used a system that they did have access to, namely the Sony PlayStation, as almost like a prototyping system for their eventual game. When we talked about different enhancements for PlayStation Doom, like a brand new soundtrack, new monster type with translucent effects, custom levels, and a revised lighting system, those would effectively become prototypes of what the team would implement for Doom 64. There was even an interview with one of the developers who stated that working on the Doom port for PlayStation alongside the Nintendo 64 title was almost like a two-for-one deal. On one hand, you had a Nintendo system that didn't yet exist in any real state, despite, ironically, its codename being Project Reality, and on the other hand, you had a next-generation console in the Sony PlayStation that was, in fact, real, and could provide a platform for the team to experiment on features that could, hopefully, be used in their future Nintendo title. Because the PlayStation version was a port rather than a brand new experience, the team had more time to work on new features, and that upfront work would reduce their total development time once they did make the leap onto the Nintendo 64. It's kind of interesting how they planned that out. Anyway, getting back to Doom 64 specifically, 
the game's world and its maps would be designed for the first time as more accurate three-dimensional representations of spaces. Recall that Doom, up to this point, had focused on pseudo-three-dimensional gameplay, where maps were designed in two dimensions but would appear to be three-dimensional through the use of perspective and a number of graphical programming tricks. Doom 64's levels, of which all would be unique and created solely for the game, were designed using three-dimensional modeling, and because of the 3D power of the Nintendo 64, the development team was able to implement features never before seen in a Doom game, like the ability to have rooms on top of other rooms, which was an impossibility when designing maps in only two dimensions. More impressive, though, were the way maps would morph and shift in response to a player's inputs. You might walk into a room and see a switch, which, when pressed, would cause the entire room to spin and shift, resulting in a new passageway appearing leading deeper into the level. This is something that just couldn't happen with Doom's original engine, and as such, Doom 64 would represent a significant enhancement in terms of overall map design possibilities over its predecessors. Equally interesting is the way that sprites for the game's various monsters would be designed, as they would all feature a unique art style that stood apart from the original incarnations of Doom's Demon Menagerie. Rather than create a bunch of hand-drawn pixel art based on clay sculptures, as Adrian Carmack did when originally creating Doom, the team behind Doom 64 would render each Doom demon using advanced silicon graphics workstations, with each of those renders being stitched together from various angles in order to create the monsters that would appear in Doom 64. They actually followed a process very reminiscent of Donkey Kong Country creators Rare, who recognized that real-time 3D rendered models just wouldn't work on the Super Nintendo, so they created a bunch of sprites based on pre-rendered models that would look like they were 3D. Midway did the same thing for Doom 64, and while the Nintendo 64 was certainly more capable than the Super Nintendo was for displaying 3D objects and characters, there was still benefit in using more traditional sprite work for these characters, especially considering the number of monsters that would inhabit certain scenes in the game, which could have certainly given the Nintendo 64 a bit of a workout. While different people have different opinions on those character designs, and I'll provide my own opinion in a few minutes, it's still impressive how the team was able to recreate these iconic creatures. Turning our attention to music, here the team would once again do something unique, as they asked Aubrey Hodges to reprise his efforts in developing an ambient, almost horror-like soundtrack for Doom 64, taking inspiration from his prior work on the PlayStation port of Doom. Here once again, the thought was that shifting the music to be more dread-inducing rather than action-packed would create a different sensation for players playing the game. And the fact is, the team was absolutely right. In addition to a slower, scarier soundtrack, the team decided to slow the action down a bit, making Doom 64 feel almost akin to a survival horror kind of experience. With that gameplay slowdown came a change to the overall environment, with a focus on more dark, foreboding types of settings as opposed to the slightly more brightly lit corridors in the original version of Doom. Taking advantage of the Nintendo 64's lighting capabilities, the team was able to create a game where light sources illuminated certain sections of the game world in a variety of colors, while other sections of the world were intentionally left bereft of light. This is another aspect of the design that many people have different opinions on, so we'll leave any further discussion of the game's lighting until our deeper dive into the game's graphics. Suffice it to say, though, Doom 64 had a very different look gameplay feel, and overall style than any Doom game that came before it. Another aspect of the original Doom's design that would be decidedly different for Doom 64 was the multiplayer gameplay. As anyone who has owned a Nintendo 64 knows, the system was almost built with multiplayer in mind, 
I mean, it even included four controller ports on the front of the system. If that doesn't scream local multiplayer, I don't know what does. And even prior console ports of Doom had a degree of multiplayer, though most use some form of rudimentary networking like the Super Nintendo version of the title, or a system link kind of setup where you'd use two systems and two televisions to play with another person, like how PlayStation Doom was designed. So for the Nintendo 64, you'd imagine Doom 64 would have some degree of multiplayer included in the title. Only here, you would actually be wrong, because Doom 64 would ship with no multiplayer options whatsoever, which Midway explained away as something that would have taken away the competitive purity of multiplayer gaming. To paraphrase one Midway employee, he basically said that one of the most fun aspects of multiplayer gaming was not knowing where your opponent would be, and split-screen multiplayer wouldn't be able to accomplish this, as anyone could simply look at their opponent's screen to see where someone was hiding. Now, I have to say... Midway's assertion is entirely right, in that cheating in split-screen multiplayer is pretty rampant, even if you don't intend to cheat. The closest my brother and I ever came to blows during our younger years was disagreements over who was sneaking a peek at the other's golden eye window, so I know firsthand about the pitfalls of split-screen gaming. But I also believe Midway's assertion is not fully thought out, as local split-screen multiplayer is also one of the most fun experiences you could have had in the 90s. To think that consumers wouldn't be interested in local multiplayer simply because someone might cheat was proven to be entirely false, as GoldenEye once again would prove just four months after Doom 64's release. This is one of those areas where the Doom 64 team might have been better off following in their predecessor's footsteps. Speaking of release, Doom 64 was originally slated to be a launch title for the Nintendo 64, but here the team hit a small issue. Id Software had been overseeing the work on the project, and when they saw the latest batch of levels that the Midway team had created, Id basically told them that they couldn't release the game. According to Id, the levels were simply not good, and they required Midway to redesign the levels before they'd feel comfortable allowing the game to come to market. Luckily for gamers around the world, Midway would complete those revisions, and Doom 64 would release on the Nintendo 64 in April of 1997. Upon release, the game was met with mostly positive praise across the critical and gaming community, with many publications claiming that this was the best Doom has ever looked, period. Many commented that the level design, soundtrack, and overall challenge level made Doom 64 a title that even veteran Doom players could get a lot of fun out of, though there were some critics who felt that it wasn't a strong enough departure from the Doom formula to warrant an additional buy, especially for anyone who might have played multiple versions of Doom over the years. Interestingly, Doom 64 would become much more popular years after its release, with many gamers declaring that Doom 64 was somewhat misunderstood when it originally came out, with some even claiming that Doom 64 was one of the more important releases in the storied franchise's catalog, acting as the bridge that connected the early incarnations of Doom's action-oriented gameplay with Doom 3's eventual slower-paced horror-themed settings. For many years, the only way to play Doom 64 was by owning a Nintendo 64 and a copy of the game, or emulating the title, whichever method you personally prefer. Luckily, though, the game received such a cult following that there would be a number of ports and conversions for Doom 64 to be playable on modern computer systems, along with various quality-of-life improvements that wouldn't have been possible on a Nintendo 64. 
these unofficial ports and conversions would eventually lead the way for Bethesda, the current owners of id Software, to work with retro remaster masters Night Dive Studios to create a version of Doom 64 playable on modern consoles and computer platforms. This remastered version of Doom 64, released back in 2020, would provide a whole new generation of gamers with the ability to experience what had previously been one of the lesser played versions of Doom in an all new way, and with all new creature comforts, cleaned up graphics, and a modernized control scheme. The remaster would also include an additional set of brand new levels, which would help connect the events of Doom 64 with the modern Doom reboot series, serving to prove, once and for all, that Doom 64 is an incredibly important release in Doom's overall canon. Doom 64 represents the first original Doom adventure not created, or at least curated, by id Software, as well as the first time a Doom experience would originate on a console as opposed to a computer system, and as such, it remains an important part in gaming history. While Doom 64 might not be quite as well known as many other Doom titles, the fact remains that Midway accomplished something that should be commended. They created a unique, decidedly different Doom experience, and at the same time, further proved that Doom on a television screen could be as effective, if not more so, than a traditional computer monitor. Doom 64 might be more well-known and appreciated today than it was years ago, but that's only because a strong and fervent fanbase wouldn't let it slip into obscurity. And as someone who loves classic gaming of all sorts, that effort is something I can truly appreciate. We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Doom 64 today versus when it was released back in 1997. So let me start out by saying that the core concept and framework behind Doom 64 is likely going to be familiar to pretty much anyone who has ever played a Doom title, or even anyone who has ever played a first-person shooter before. Your mission in Doom 64 is to take control of a one-man army and destroy a ton of demons, traversing a variety of levels via a first-person perspective where your only goal is to kill as many bad guys as possible. Along the way, you'll pick up a variety of weapons, navigate a number of environments, obstacles, and maps, and encounter a large variety of enemies, each of which have their own strengths and weaknesses. So, yeah, Doom 64 is pretty much Doom but there are a number of features that serve to set it apart from the other classic Doom experiences that you may be used to, and it is these features that make the game a unique experience. For one, and we mentioned this earlier, the map design in Doom 64 is much more advanced than in prior iterations of Doom, with more complex environments, truly three-dimensional visuals, rooms on top of rooms, and other interesting geometry that just wasn't possible in the original Doom engine. Perhaps most interesting from a map design standpoint is the fact that some levels have areas of their maps that will rotate, morph, and reform themselves based on actions you take in the game, which more often than not involves pressing some sort of switch or picking up an item to make something happen. 
This was an innovative way to inject some advanced mapping features into the traditional Doom formula, and for the most part, it worked well. Another unique aspect of Doom 64's design was the pace of gameplay, which was designed to be just a tad slower than prior Doom entries, though not dramatically so from my perspective. This, coupled with the lower monster density in many of the maps, made the Doom 64 experience feel more like a foreboding sinister experience as opposed to a pure adrenaline action kind of game. Now that's not to say that you're only going to be fighting a small number of monsters though, because there are definitely sections of the game that are filled to the brim with a variety of bad guys that need to be defeated across the 32 levels that make up the game. Of those 32 levels, 25 are critical path kinds of stages, meaning you have to beat them in order to beat the game, while there are also four secret levels and three of what the game calls fun levels, and I use that term in quotes, which are basically challenge levels that use the game's mechanics in interesting and often deadly ways. The game itself is split up into two distinct sections, with the first eight main levels and two secret levels of the game taking place on a number of Earth-based military bases, while the final two-thirds of the game takes place in Hell itself. The environments change as you might expect as you progress through the game, with the early Earth levels being more industrial and militaristic in nature, while the Hell levels are all fire, brimstone, and death. Of interesting note here is the way the secret levels actually impact the final boss fight of the game. I won't go into any spoilers here, but the way it works is there is a certain item that you can get in each secret stage that will serve to make that final fight easier. If you manage to find all of the special items in those secret stages, you'll be in good shape. If, however, you're like me and didn't in fact find any of the secret stages, good luck. Anyway, I have a lot to say about the game and my overall thoughts on the experience, but I'll wait to cover those details until we get to the specific sections of our pseudo-review. But first, as we always do, we need to look at the back of the box, because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love seeing how different companies marketed their titles or tried to get their titles to be purchased by the general consumer community. Back around this time, we didn't yet have a pervasive internet with all data available at our fingertips. We certainly didn't have YouTube where we could look up gameplay videos. So a lot of times, our decisions about whether to buy something were based entirely on what we knew about the title. It could have been from magazines or things like that. But a lot of times, it was really based on what the box looked like and whether the box looked cool and if the back of the box sold us. So, for Doom 64 on the Nintendo 64... The back of the box says you killed the demons once they were all dead or so you thought a single demon entity escaped detection systematically it altered decaying dead carnage back into grotesque living tissue the demons have returned stronger and more vicious than ever before your mission is clear there are no options kill or be killed and then there are some bullet points with some screenshots they say, stunning 3D graphics, ultra-smooth gameplay, and CD-quality music and sound effects blend seamlessly to make this the most incredible version of Doom ever. Choose one of four difficulty settings and prepare to match wits with 16 radically redesigned creatures. They could be anywhere, so stay alert as you fight your way through more than 30 terrifying levels. Be on the lookout for enhanced weapons, unbelievable secrets, and startling surprises as you journey through the nightmare world of Doom 64. Designed only for the N64, 
this all-new version of Doom ushers in a new era of gameplay and performance. And then there is a quote here from Electronic Gaming Monthly Magazine that says, Astonishing is the best way to describe the graphics and action. Destined to set the standard on any home system. So I've got to say, the back of the box makes this game sound absolutely phenomenal. And had I seen this back in the day, I definitely would have bought it. And guess what? I did. In fact, buy it. This is part of my N64 collection. So I did have Doom 64. I will admit, I didn't really sit down to play a lot of Doom 64 until I sat down to prepare for this episode. So let's talk about all that. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. Undoubtedly, this is probably the best looking of all of the classic Doom games, meaning every Doom title prior to Doom 3, which was a more advanced 3D accelerated kind of experience. I have to say, I really liked the graphics in Doom 64, from the quality of the textures to the revised sprite work on the monsters to the overall environment design and the way they feel. Everything looked great. The colored, and in some cases dynamic lighting, really helped make the game feel like a more advanced version of Doom, a true evolution on the graphical quality of prior titles, and it really worked for me. That is, it worked for me when I could actually see the graphics, because boy do I have a bone to pick with the darkness in the game. I recognize that the game was designed to be a more horror type of experience in comparison to prior Doom games, and with that design decision, I can completely understand why the developers and designers would want to make the game look a bit darker. From my perspective, though, I think they went way too far, so much so that it almost feels like the default brightness level is completely broken. Let me tell you how much fun it is to navigate pitch-black environments while a group of translucent demons are chasing you with no apparent way of escape. It's, well, it's not fun, not in the least. Even adjusting the brightness slider in the game's options all the way to max only makes the game semi-visible, which is crazy to me. It honestly feels like something is off. Though I will say, the hell levels are much better than the early Earth levels. The hell levels are dark, but at least they're visible, assuming you crank the brightness all the way to max. Those Earth levels, though, they were something else. I don't know who possibly thought making the game so, so dark would have been a good idea, especially because the only way to offset that darkness would be to find light amplification goggles hidden in certain maps. Even those, though, provide only the littlest bit of assistance. Now, I will confess, I did not play this on a CRT television, so it's entirely possible that the darkness may be less egregious than what I experienced if played on the display technology that the game was designed for. But considering that many gamers don't have CRTs lying around, it is a real issue that you'll face if you try to play the Nintendo 64 version of the game. I should also note that the recent remaster, as commissioned by Bethesda itself, makes the game dramatically brighter, which to me suggests that there was a recognized issue with the darkness in the game. I did play a good portion of the remaster in addition to playing the original version of the game, and I have to say, it is literally a night and day difference. The remaster looks so good, and the brightness is so well balanced in the remaster that it just makes the original version look really poor or just really too dark in comparison. I know there were some people that have complained that the remaster brightness takes away some of the horror elements of the game, 
But I would argue that I would rather see what I'm doing as opposed to not see what I'm doing when I play a game. For me, the darkness wasn't scary. It was simply annoying. For a game that does look pretty darn good, it is a shame that many of the visuals were obscured by the arbitrarily darkened scenes. Definitely disappointing and irritating, in my opinion. Moving on to the sound and music, the music in this game is very different than most of the classic Doom games that were released, aside from the Sony PlayStation port, which also featured music by Aubrey Hodges. When I first started playing Doom 64, I wasn't exactly sure how to feel about the music, as I've always equated the Doom soundtrack with Bobby Prince's hard-hitting metal soundtrack. But as I kept playing the game, I came to realize that the more ambient, darker sounds that Aubrey Hodges composed for the game are nothing short of genius, and the music is perhaps my favorite aspect of the entire game. It is super foreboding and does more to make the game feel like a survival horror kind of experience than anything else in the title. It isn't anything I'd ever listen to outside of playing the game, but within the context of the game playing experience, it works absolutely flawlessly. Sound effects are similarly excellent, with all of the new demon and weapon sounds fitting in perfectly with the game world. I was incredibly impressed with the auditory environment of the game. Like I said, it's probably my favorite part of the game. It is that good. Moving on to the narrative and story. Within the context of the overarching Doom narrative, Doom 64 takes place after Final Doom, which was itself a pseudo-sequel to Doom and Doom 2. Effectively, you once again play as the Doom guy, and despite your triumph over the minions of hell in your past adventures, it seems something has survived. This something has the power to resurrect and regenerate the demonic hordes, and as you might expect, that is exactly what is happening. You thought your nightmare was over, but instead, it is truly only just beginning. You recognize there's only one way to defeat this menace. You have to return to hell and demolish every single evil entity out there, including the regenerating monster behind the latest demonic resurgence. You grab your shotgun, lace up your boots, and get ready to once again save humanity from the forces of darkness once and for all. As you all might expect, the narrative here isn't particularly deep, and it is in some ways reminiscent of other classic Doom games in that any sort of plot is only really window dressing for the core gameplay of the title. But I have to say, the story here works. There is just enough backstory and lore to pique your interests while not getting in the way of the game's true focus, which is violent, over-the-top carnage. For what it is, the story fits perfectly with the game, and I have no complaints here. Moving on to the playability and controls. The overall control scheme is pretty much what you would expect for a Doom-style title. You move around the game world using your analog stick or digital pad, shoot using your Z button on the back of the N64 controller, and use your shoulder buttons to strafe either left or right. The A and B buttons on your controller cycle your currently equipped weapon, while the C buttons perform a variety of functions, including your default action button for opening doors or activating switches, bringing up your map, activating the ability to run, and toggling strafe with your general movement actions, as opposed to having to use the shoulder buttons. For the most part, these controls work, though they are definitely not quite as smooth feeling as modern first-person shooters with dual analog sticks. The fact is, though, you don't really need dual analog sticks for Doom 64, because it still uses the traditional Doom formula of walking around without any degree of mouse look, so to speak, which means shooting at enemies involves simply having them in front of you. There is no height adjustment needed to hit the enemies above or below you. Within the context of the game, 
the controls are fine, though I will say that the movement felt a bit slidey to me, almost as though the inertia was a bit off. I don't know if that's because the N64 controls aren't really as precise as a traditional mouse and keyboard kind of setup, or what, but I can say that there were times where I'd zoom right past an enemy I wanted to shoot, or turn just a smidge too far and end up missing my shot. There's definitely something lacking here, though I'm not sure what exactly is to blame. There are bigger issues than those relatively minor control foibles, though. And for me, these issues are so pervasive that they serve to really detract from your enjoyment of the game. Like we talked about earlier, the maps in Doom 64 are much more complex than the traditional Doom style of map, with a number of areas that morph and change based on your actions. The issue is, the designers decided to tie many of those map morphs and shifts to pressing switches in the game world, which by itself isn't a huge deal. The thing is, though, The switches are not always near where the game world changes, so a lot of the time, you don't know what part of a given map changed based on the switch that you just hit. Which means you need to backtrack through many of the levels, searching for some sort of change that will allow you to progress through the game. This really dragged down the pace of the game, unnecessarily, and made it feel like you never really knew where you needed to go. Sometimes when you hit a switch, though, the map itself doesn't change, but instead you get surrounded by any number of immediately spawning demons and monsters who want nothing more than to rip you to shreds. These traps are truly irritating, and because the developers are devious, they're not always tied to hitting a switch. Sometimes simply picking up a weapon will trigger a bunch of spawning demons, while other times walking down a corridor and through an invisible trigger will make you get waylaid by a demonic horde. I can appreciate traps in games like Doom 64, and they are not inherently a bad idea. But in a game where you cannot save in the middle of a level, the traps can become very irritating. Every other original Doom experience, and by that I mean the computer versions of the title, balanced out their difficulty with the fact that you could save anywhere you wanted. If you just got past a ridiculously tough part of a level, you save your game content with the fact that you don't need to do that again. In Doom 64, though, there is no mid-level save or checkpoint system, which means if you die, you have to redo the entire stage. Now, the levels are not terribly long in general, but it is still a design decision that, while likely brought about because of the Nintendo 64's console-based limitations, was still a major irritant for me through my playthrough. Another major irritant was the game's over-reliance on a couple of enemy types that the designers must have loved, because so many levels are filled with a mix of Barons of Hell and Hell Knights. So many levels. So many Barons of Hell and Hell Knights. I cannot impress upon you how many of these jerks you have to beat through your playthrough. It's excessive and it's frustrating. I know that the Nintendo 64 cartridge-based storage had limitations that made it so that certain monsters couldn't be included in the game, which meant that certain other monsters had to be used more often than would be ideal. Regardless, choosing the Barons of Hell and Hell Knights to be the replacement for all of the missing enemies was a major issue from my perspective. Having enemies that take up to six rocket blasts to defeat is not fun when they exist in such quantities. It is simply irritating. With all of that said, there is goodness here. It's just that a lot of the frustrations overwhelm the goodness that exists in the rest of the game. So overall, Doom 64 is a bit of a mixed bag. On one hand, it's definitely an evolution on the Doom formula, and there are a lot of things here that are conceptually good. 
but those good concepts are oftentimes overridden by irritating situations, design decisions, and uneven difficulty. My personal playthrough was a roller coaster of emotions, fluctuating from frustration to being impressed to being irritated to having fun, and then back to frustration. I am happy that I experienced the game, if only for the historical perspective. But I don't know that I'd ever sit down to play the Nintendo 64 version again. And because of my experience with the Nintendo 64 version, I was super curious about the remaster because it changed a number of these frustrating elements, including adding the ability to save in the middle of a level, alterations to the game's control scheme, and revisions to the brightness in various parts of levels. I wondered, would a slightly modern coat of paint improve Doom 64 that much? The short answer to that is yes. Yes, it does. And it is not even close. The re-released version of Doom 64 was so, so, so much better than the original. So much so that it quickly became one of my favorite classic Doom experiences. There are still some quirks with the design, like switches whose function isn't always obvious, but the overall feeling of playing the game is so dramatically better that it almost feels like a different game. This is the Doom 64 experience we should have all had in the first place. I cannot stress enough how much better the re-release is. It is truly a night and day difference. So overall, what is our verdict on Doom 64? Well, I really wanted to like Doom 64 because I have really enjoyed pretty much every other Doom game I've played, and I was looking forward to experiencing something new, so to speak, in the Doom universe. And while I did definitely play something decidedly different than the normal classic Doom experience, I'm not sure I wholeheartedly enjoyed my time playing the game. There is goodness here, but there's also a ton of frustration. I know Doom 64 has a ton of fans nowadays, and it has developed a cult following over the years. But from my perspective, there are several design decisions that make the game less fun and less worthwhile than the id Software design games. That's why, for me, Doom 64 is a mediocre mention. There is definitely stuff to like, and if we were talking about the re-release, it's highly likely that Doom 64 would make it into the Pantheon territory, since that addresses a bunch of my complaints. But, Doom 64 in its original form is not that. There are frustrations, irritations, and sometimes baffling design decisions that detract from the overall experience of playing and enjoying the game. It's not without its merits, but for me, I can't recommend this one to the majority of the gaming population. It's not so much that it aged poorly, it's simply something that I felt could have been designed better. You may still have a good time if you choose to play it, but from my perspective, Doom 64 just isn't as fun as I would have hoped, which is why it exists as the newest member of our list of mediocre mentions. That was our episode on Doom 64. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, 
or just talk about classic games and technology in general, I would love to hear from you. And there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at Classic Gaming T. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the gaming community around this podcast. We have a ton of great fun out on Discord. I do highly encourage you all to join. We also have a Patreon. That is Patreon.com slash Classic Gaming Today. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, Patreon.com slash Classic Gaming Today is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on E.T. for the Atari 2600. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. And if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is gathering the feedback necessary to make sure this is the best possible podcast I can make. The only way to do that is to get feedback from you, the listener community, to make sure that I'm hitting the mark, don't have any gaps, and continue to create the content that you all want to listen to. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on E.T. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.